The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Welcome back to the Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Sutter, your host for today. And we are going to be discussing today for the third episode of our infant series, a whole conversation about postpartum depression. And I am joined in the studio today by Dr. Rachel Herbst and Kara Messmore. Um, Rachel is a behavior and developmental specialist, and Kara is a mental health therapist. And they both work with families who are experiencing depression and helping them through it. Rachel, thanks so much for being here today. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. So as a psychologist who focuses on behavior and development, it means that I am seeing families alongside their pediatrician in their well visits. And so it is a really special place for us to think about all of the things that are going to promote infant health. And uh, as we'll dive into in some more detail, we know that maternal well-being is one of the biggest things in terms of promoting infant health. And so um, it doesn't get as much discussion as what it really deserves. And so Kara and I are here today to shed some light on that, to really normalize this conversation and help folks understand, um, you know, how it's really related to the overall goals of promoting development and health in infants and young children. That's amazing. We're so glad you're here and so glad we have this opportunity to give it some of the discussion that it needs. And Kara, so glad you're here as well. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much. And it is it is such a privilege to work alongside Rachel to be able to follow these families then and to keep that continuity in the pediatric clinics. And it's a great thing to do. So the first thing I'd love to start with is just some like terminology and as we were preparing for this episode, um, we've talked about both postpartum depression and maternal depression. And could we just start with an explanation of the two and what, how they, you know, coexist and how they're different? Yeah. Well, there's several different buzzwords. Lots of people will hear these days. They'll hear the perinatal depression. They'll they'll hear postpartum depression and then maternal depression. So with the, the perinatal, we're talking about kind of the spectrum of you have depression in, or you you are experiencing an episode in the pregnancy at that point in time, whether that's first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, something happens, you're experiencing it. And then we move towards postpartum where you've delivered the baby and you're now, you know, working through a lot of those emotions and hormones, which I know we'll talk about. And then we move towards, you know, you're going towards that year. And a little bit after that year, you may still be experiencing depression, whether you have a history or not. And then we start looking at maternal depression at that point in time. And so one of the reasons why we care about depression in any of those points in time is that we know that it can have an impact on infants and how moms are relating to and interacting with their infants. And so that's where, um, again, maternal depression is kind of the the biggest Mm -hmm. umbrella of it all. And for Kara and I, we care less about when does it happen and more about how can we be supportive of moms as they're going through this experience so that we can also ensure that we're supporting their infants, fetuses, young kids, Mm -hmm. all across the spectrum. So then how is the experience of 
an episode of depression in one of these areas, like how would you define that? Yeah. When we when we think about a depressive episode, you know, that's something that when a birthing person is really experiencing kind of the the lows of the pregnancy um, experience. It's it's where they're really feeling that depressed mood. They're not they may not be liking themselves. They they really lose pleasure and interest in things that they normally would have loved to do. They don't find enjoyment in things. They could have weight changes, fatigue, sleep problems. You have appetite changes, a, a lot of assortment of those symptoms. Usually we're looking at if they have four to five of those symptoms for more than two weeks, you're describing a depressive episode. And I know some people can sometimes downgrade that and minimize it and say, well, that's just part of pregnancy. That's just what you go through as your body's changing. But we're getting to a point where you're having an episode when you are really struggling to function on a day-to-day basis to the point that you're not able to really think clearly. You start have these spiraling thoughts. And that is that is a depressive episodes. And more likely than not, women don't realize they're actually having it. And a lot of family members may also, like I said, minimize it. And so once we can't, we don't identify it, we don't realize that it actually will intensify as we have more of those episodes. And I think what can be so hard is, you know, to Kara's point, society tells us that, you know, you're supposed to just expect that, mm-hmm. you know, being a parent, being a caregiver, being a mother is hard, that pregnancy is hard, that postpartum is hard, and you, you know, it's in every meme, everywhere on social media that you might see. Yeah. And so I think it makes it really hard then to be able to check in with yourself and differentiate, is this just kind of in the course of what's to be expected? And am I supposed to just sort of deal with it? Or is this actually something that warrants additional support? And, you know, as a psychologist, I would say it actually doesn't matter if it's a depressive episode or if this is just hard. (laughs) We should be providing support regardless Mm -hmm. if this is a struggle. So I I think that's one of the biggest pieces. Uh, You know, if if Kara and I had some like magic wands, part of what we'd want to change is to be able to say that actually there there shouldn't just be this expectation of acceptance that when things are hard and we're struggling and especially emotional struggling, which I think can be really easy to mask and really hard for other people to fully understand Mm -hmm. the extent of, we should always be offering support and the terminology and the criteria matters less, but some ways in some ways, it can be, you know, a tool to be able to communicate with other folks about what, what you're experiencing, and it can give you access to resources and services. But very big picture, we want to make sure that there is great emotional health support, regardless of what we're, what we're calling this. So what about the term baby blues? I hear that one tossed around, and I, I absolutely hear you that sometimes, sometimes the words help us describe it though. What do you think when you hear somebody say, oh, I think I just have the baby blues? So we know from the research that like 80 to 90% of people are going to experience some sense of baby blues. And this normally is in the first one to two weeks postpartum. And mostly it's been attributed and the research is, you know, it's out there to some degree on this, but mostly it's attributed to significant hormone changes and just kind of basic transition pieces. And so the big difference between depression and baby blues is that it's persisting for longer than that one to two week period of time. And so that's how we could know that we're differentiating between 
you know, what is more normal and typical still needs support, but normal and typical versus something that is a little bit more intense. And then in terms of like postpartum depression, we see about 10 to 20% of women experience this. And it actually is one of the most common technically like complications related to labor and delivery. And we do a really good job in healthcare at identifying, you know, if there is elevated blood pressure postpartum or if there's other bleeding postpartum or other things like that that people check in on. But uh, there's still not as much attention, screening, discussion, validation of maternal depression, postpartum depression as such a serious and common complication that is uh, associated with that postpartum period of time. Yeah. And even, I mean, part of the research does show that like 50 to 75% of these moms who are experiencing it don't ever get diagnosed. They That's make a huge number. It's a huge number. But even when even when you have these screenings in the OB, in the mm-hmm. obstetrician, and you're, the, you're at the OB so much, so you're thinking either they're going to pick it up or you're, you're just not sure about it. But you're there so much that you just kind of go through the motions. You go through the questions. You just kind of answer them. You just kind of get done. And that's where uh, there's a different opportunity now with the pediatric clinics where after the fact, you're looking at their they're doing the questionnaire on the tablet. Those questionnaires are so important. And if you answer truthfully, it doesn't mean you're a bad mom. It doesn't mean that, you know, something is seriously, seriously, horribly wrong with you. It just means you are experiencing this postpartum phase very intensely. And there is help for that. What impact does a mother's depression episode have on the home, on children, on her infant? Like, what does that, what can that look like? Yeah, we know that that can take a lot of different forms. So, you know, one of the things that it can really impact is just the kind of bond and relationship she feels like she has with her baby. And whether this is like during pregnancy or whether it's postpartum, we know that that can definitely be impacted, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like when you feel, you know, just kind of all out of sorts yourself and your sleep is poor and your mood is poor and it just feels like everything else around you is, ugh, it is really hard to feel connected. And then what's really tricky about that is it can create some cycles of shame because you get the message that you're supposed to be so happy because you have this, you know, this baby that is wonderful. And especially if they've been healthy and everything is normal and everything is going well, you know, the message from everybody around you is like, well, you know, just appreciate the fact that you've got this healthy, happy, normal baby. And so that can be really challenging then to have that kind of bond and that attachment that you're forming early on. And we know that that's related to a lot of different developmental outcomes. Also, when you're depressed and you don't have the energy or the motivation to do different things, you're less likely to interact with your infant. And one of the biggest ways to promote development is having lots of back and forth interactions with babies. And so whether that's when you're talking to them them, looking at them, smiling at them, all of those things are so critical in the early months of life for brain development for infants. 
and you're less likely to do that if you're depressed. You're also more likely to experience kind of positive or neutral things as really negative. And so it means that when your baby is doing very normal things, like they're crying and they're needing extra support to be comforted and soothed, it's not uncommon for moms to have the experience of feeling like frustrated or blaming their babies for being, you know, needing mm-hmm. just typical levels of comfort and attention and interaction that's happening. And so when we take all of those things together, when we look like long term what the impact can be, we see that, um, you know, infants of moms who have have experienced depression are more likely to have problems with being able to calm down and soothe themselves as they get older. They're more likely to have uh, developmental delays. They're more likely to have behavior problems. And then all of that, if you kind of take it to the next level when you get to be in school, it also means you're more likely to have school problems in a variety of different ways. And so again, this is where I go back to as you know, a psychologist that focuses on promotion of development and like healthy functioning for kids, we and our pediatrician colleagues can't do a good job of all the things that we're supposed to do if we're not taking really good care of our caregivers. I do want to note, we're talking about maternal depression. Obviously, families come in lots of different forms. And so when we talk more broadly about maternal depression, it's actually less important biologically who that person is, how they identify. We know that there is paternal depression. We know that kids that are cared for by other you know, family members or kinship providers, they still are experiencing the same things that we're talking about now. So even though we're talking mostly about maternal depression, that's where there's the most research and that's where there's the most attention, I want to make sure we don't completely neglect that oftentimes kids have lots of other supports. And so the things that we're, we're talking about as being impacted by depression are true for, you know, any, anybody that's in a primary caregiving role to a child. Definitely. And I think you can count that for those who are then caring for them if mom is not caring for them or dad at that point in time, which we tend to neglect at times. But it is astronomical to think about how the impact of depression can be on children. And I I can look at kind of my even my own experiences, as well as a lot of the moms that I'll visit in homes. And you just you can see that there's there's just a disconnect when you see them relating to their children. And even when they're relating to their partners and the people around them, they'll feel more defensive. They'll get more irritable. And at that point in time, you know, that child is trying to interpret things, whether they know it or not. You know, their brain is rapidly developing at that point in time. So if they're hearing all this yelling, they're hearing aggression, they're hearing just this frustration and aspiration, they're not going to be able to really understand what a loving touch feels like, what a, oh no, I see you need this. You know, this is, this is how you're getting your needs met. They're not going to understand that. And so as they grow, you know, sometimes we wonder why children don't immediately react. I guess when we tell them to do something, sometimes that could just be a response of, they just, they don't have the skill to do it yet. They have not been developmentally taught at that point in time, how to do it. So what can new moms be thinking about? Like you said something earlier, Rachel, about a check-in with themselves. I think that's a really important thing. So what should a check-in that a mom does with herself look like? So definitely with, with moms, especially when you're in that pregnancy phase, just being able to know who you are, especially as, you, as you're coming into that pregnancy phase, and then the, the needs that you do have and be able to have those reflection check-ins each week. It might feel overwhelming. It might feel selfish 
but it is probably one of the best things you can ever do for your body, for your baby, for your mind, and for your family is to check in with how am I doing? What do I need at this point in time? And who can I ask for help if I do need help? And those are really big things. If you start that practice when you're pregnant, and you continue that into postpartum, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, because so many people are like, oh yeah, I'll be here for you. I'll give you whatever you need. Half the time, moms don't even know what they need. And so that really, if if you do the practice beforehand, it starts to create that definition of what you need. And I think some warning signs that you might see if you were doing that self-check-in might be sort of noticing that like it's hard to remember or recognize the things that give you like interest and pleasure If you're feeling really like irritable and extra moody around things, like those are good early signs that you are, you know, that you're in a place that you need some more support, even if you're not sure what it looks like. And Mm -hmm. hopefully Kara and I can shed light on, you know, outside of like formal therapy, the kinds of things that there are lots of tools that anybody can access that can help them. And ideally we would want to be in a place where, you know, we're helping people catch some early signs and that they don't get to the point that they actually are depressed or having a depressive episode. And I am anxious to get to those, but while we're talking about kind of those those signs that could be indication that some additional support or help is needed, what can other people kind of around the family be looking for that they might be able to see something that mom herself doesn't. Yeah, I think a lot of times families can just basically look for the extremes. If you see a mom who is very, it, it's odd to say this, but very, 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 very connected to their baby to the point that they will not leave their baby at all with anyone ever. And that can be for multiple reasons. But when you have, when there's such a focus on baby, 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 and mom not really being able to take that space, that that is a warning sign. On the other spectrum is kind of that disconnect where you have mom just kind of staring off into space, baby's crying off to the side, and she's just like, the baby's crying, I don't know what they need. You can see that clear disconnect. Um, crying all the time, if you see that she just cries at a drop of a hat, uh, past I would say past that four week to six week point, then you're looking at, okay, there might be, there might be more to this than, than what's going on. Does she need more sleep? Um, and being able to watch those patterns of just the basic needs that we all need between food. Is she eating? Is she even eating anything mm-hmm. um, and receiving that that fluid intake? And so just being observant of the everyday is really helpful. And Kara, I think you hit on a point that we haven't talked about yet, which is that um, postpartum anxiety does not get much of attention in yeah, any place. And anxiety and depression are oftentimes like you know, cousins from another mother that come alongside each other all the time. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it's so normalized that people are going to be anxious about things with their babies, which makes a lot of sense. It's the first time you've ever been responsible for some other little human that has no capability of doing things on their own. But the, the difference between what would be kind of normal expected anxiety and what would be something to pay attention to would be, as Kara mentioned, that like not wanting to separate from the baby. And we don't talk often about this, but oftentimes what comes alongside that is really intrusive thoughts. And so thoughts that you cannot be in control of that come up frequently about like, oh my gosh, what if I drop my baby while I'm walking across the kitchen and something bad happens to them? Just kind of continually. And those things are so, that anxiety and that depression are so linked. Mm -hmm. And people oftentimes don't ask any questions 
about that as well. Um, so it's another sign to look out for if people are talking about like those worry thoughts that they just can't control. And it seems like they're happening really frequently throughout the day. Again, it would be normal as a, you know, as a caregiver to have those thoughts occasionally, but that you could control them, that they're, you know, they come and they go pretty quickly. But those thoughts that kind of get stuck or that make it hard for you to like lay down and rest and sleep when your baby is sleeping because you're worried that they're going to stop breathing or something bad is going to happen Mm -hmm. to them. Those would be other signs that other people around um, the caregiver could probably observe as well. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because really 75 to 80% of moms have those intrusive thoughts, but often they'll come and then they'll go. But the ones where it continually stays and starts to spiral, that's, you're looking at a warning sign. And I was just thinking too, as you, as you were both talking there, there's a lot of pressure on new moms Mm -hmm. and on new families. And, you know, I'm thinking about breastfeeding that doesn't come easily to everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about families where there are older kiddos Mm -hmm. in the home who are experiencing their own major life change and looking to that parent to help them through it. Mm -hmm. How do these things kind of play into this world? Oh, wow. They they all play together. They're like this big jumble of cluster of stress and life and experience. And I think it does enhance when you have another child coming into the home. It it creates a new set of rhythms. It creates a new set of routines for all the kids um, as well as mom. And so it can really exasperate any kind of depressive episode that a mom may be having or a dad may be having. I, I like how Dr. Rachel also talked about that piece of dads are deeply impacted by this as well. And I think also, you know, as as you mentioned, breastfeeding, um, there is actually really great research that like part of um, helping people successfully breastfeed requires you to pay attention to their mental health as well, even when it's going like relatively well. I think one of the things that can be so hard is that, you know, in the healthcare system, a lot of great providers are like, well, it's normal that the latch is hard. It's normal that these things are happening. And so I think as a parent yourself, when you get those messages, it's actually not particularly helpful. It definitely increases the level of stress, especially if it's either a goal that you've set for yourself or an expectation that you or other people around you have. And then we haven't talked about, you know, you add on things like if your baby needed to be cared for in the NICU after they were born, or if there are any other complications, you layer all of those things, those kinds of stressors, especially stressors that you have limited control over, if they're happening to you or your family and or, you know, Kara and I I primarily work with families that have a lot of other psychosocial stressors. So, you know, they're living in poverty and they're experiencing housing instability and other things like that. All of that increases the level of risk that you are going to have some form of depression because it's just a natural reaction to stressful things in the world. I think one of the other things that's so challenging is... um, In the U.S., we've really moved toward this idea that, you know, as a parent and especially as a mother, you should be able to perfectly balance and manage all of these things. And what we know from the research is like, you know, the old saying, it takes a village is really truly um, what 
was meant and always intended when we think about optimal child development, optimal family development. And I think that is really complicated because it's a message then that you should not reach out and ask for support because you should be able to somehow manage all of these stressors. And then the last piece to add in is I think there are a lot of other cultural factors that we haven't talked about. We know, for example, that, you know, rates are higher in black women and for lots of structural and systemic racism that happens. I mean, especially when you think about infant mortality and maternal mortality rates that are super high for black women. And here in Cincinnati, that's the case as well. Yeah, I was going to say, so, this, is, this is here. Yes, this is here. This is here. It's in our own backyard. We mm-hmm. also don't talk a lot about that. But, um, you know, when you know that, and even as I have had friends that, you know, are black women and they are educated and they know about all of these things, their level of stress around whether or not they're going to have a healthy, safe pregnancy is something that they are carrying with them. And that is related to all kinds of factors that are built into the healthcare system and the biases that are still currently experienced. And so um, when we want to unpack and think about like why those rates are higher in certain groups, it is because unfortunately it is still built into the bones of this society in so many ways that the weight of everyday life experiences are harder. Um, so I do want to make sure that we underscore mm-hmm. that because it is untold it's the elephant in the room which is is also incredibly challenging and then you think about speaking up in a healthcare environment to say that you need something extra or that you're experiencing something challenging that takes a whole other level of courage and I know for Kara and I the the moms with whom we work oftentimes will um, tell us that they have fears of speaking about this because they worry that there could be consequences to sharing their experiences, and they're worried that it might mean that we're calling child welfare because we think that they're unfit mothers, when that is the last thing we want to do. And we see it as the ultimate bravery to be able to speak up and speak out about this. But again, we come with the understanding that, you know, systems have punished you in the Mm -hmm. past unjustly. And so, of course, you are going to worry about whether or not you can trust the healthcare system that you're a part of, that your baby's a part of. Mm-hmm. So that's another component as we're thinking about, you yeah. know, all of the factors that can put people at increased risk for experiencing maternal depression. I also want to mention, we're, we're, you know, when we talk about the expectations, there's also the rhythm of life that has changed, even pre-COVID. Just the pace at which we live in America is so fast, and that's something that we expect moms Okay, you gave birth. Okay, well, there's this meeting here at this time. You still need to be at it. You still need to be at the school. You still need to do this. And there's so many demands on moms still that I think that that's a big thing for families to be aware of. If if, if a mom needs to be at a certain place, help her. Mm-hmm. Help her out. Don't just, she'll say she's fine because she wants to be fine. And so she'll say it, but she really needs your help. And then one of the last things that I think is a huge stressor that doesn't get a lot of discussion is the expectation of like what your postpartum body is supposed to look like when it's supposed to look a certain way. You know, there's all kinds of marketing and materials and, you know, examples of celebrities that have bounced back and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's I, I think, you know, as we talk about this, I always keep in mind this is a normal reaction to some really abnormal things that we are expected to be able to just manage and deal with. And it's just not the way that it gets 
discussed. So let's talk about support. What what can support look like to help moms who have so many different factors at play in what they're experiencing? Well, we, we're looking at the family support, but also friendship supports. Uh, there's a lot of young mothers who have friends who then kind of drop off because they're not exactly sure what she needs and she's not sure what she needs. Uh, so based upon friendships, family relationships, coworkers, just reaching out, reaching out and being able to say, I care. I, I want to know how to help. I want to be part of that. Um, here in Cincinnati, we do have a couple of very unique organizations I do want to mention that are um, partnered with Cincinnati Children's, and that's uh, Cradle Cincinnati and also the Queens Village, which is specific to um, African-American moms and and creating a village for them. And it's, our, it's like a prepackaged village that's right there, and you just have to step out and access it. The Cradle Cincinnati is really great for a lot of resources in general, and having uh, another person come alongside you. You may not be experiencing depression at that point in time, but you still need extra support. It's uh, very helpful. And then they can also help to hook you up with some mental health resources at that time. Of course, we have Moving Beyond Depression, but with that, we're, we're connected through two pediatric clinics. And then Best Point also has a Moving Beyond Depression therapist as well. So I know we'll have some of those links and then when I think about as, you know, friends, family, neighbors, other folks are reaching out, sometimes the basics, if you're not sure where to start, oh, yeah. I'm going to drop off food for you. The expectation also that I am coming to support you. I'm not coming to hold your baby. I'm not coming to play with your baby unless you decided that that is helpful. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes those visits, especially in the early weeks and months, are all about the baby and everybody wants to hold the baby. And, you know, that may or may not be helpful. Thinking about other kinds of tangible support. Do you need help with laundry? Do you need help with dishes? Can I run some errands for you? You know, just thinking about like on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis, like what are those things that most people need to accomplish and how can you help carry that load? Um, So that's kind of one category of just the like nuts and bolts of what there is. Mm -hmm. We also know from therapy, and Kara can speak more to this, but we know that one of the things that starts to happen when you get depressed is you stop doing the things that give you joy. And then when you do that, you start to see the world more negatively because you haven't had anything fun, exciting, pleasant, right? Um, And so there's actually a therapy strategy called behavioral activation that we think about with moms, which is just starting to do something small that's pleasurable. And we talk, uh, I talk about this in clinics with mom all the time, and this is part of Kara's therapy, is, you know, even if it's something as small as, can you put your favorite song on and not multitask while your favorite song is on? Just let yourself be on that music that's there, right? It doesn't need to be like the full self-care package of, you know, like a bath or getting your nails done. And that might be something that can be great and you can work toward. But especially when we're thinking about like what are small, more realistically achievable things? Mm -hmm. Are there things like that that you can do? Yeah, you don't even have to spend money on it. Just something you can do at home for you to fill you back up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the role of other people. So oftentimes when I think about like partners or close friends, um, they're the ones that might prompt, remind, make space, find, you know, like, oh, you know what? It's time for you to like put on your Mary J. Blige, like it's fine song. You're not going to do anything else at this time. I'm holding the baby. We're going to go in another room. I want to give you this five minutes where it's truly just for you. Those are really tangible things that can be 
incredibly impactful Mm -hmm. for mom's moods. I remember when my youngest was born, I, I forget who it was I asked, but I was like, can you please just take the older kids to do something Mm -hmm. fun? Like just because I cannot give them fun at the moment and they need that. But I also remember it being hard to like give other people assignments. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking like my brain is barely getting through what I need to do. It's hard for me to give assignments. So I love what you were saying about just, I'm doing this for you. And as long as it's something that isn't so personal that it's hard for someone else to do, I think that's a really good strategy for somebody who wants to help. Yeah. And like, I'm going to the grocery. I would love to pick you up a couple things or even just go to the grocery and just get the diapers, get milk, get eggs, get, I mean, I don't know about their dietary needs, but just do it. Get the basics and Mm -hmm. there's something there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if a family determines that there's a caregiver, that there's a a mom who, you know, these supports are great, they're helping, but she really needs some additional treatment support. What does that look like? Yeah, well, definitely reaching out to a pediatric clinic is going to be helpful and pediatric provider, letting them know that as well, that you might need help in your OB. Uh, But I also think just there's even local resources. There's the websites. You can look for different um, therapists who are specialized in kind of the perinatal depression. There's that buzzword. And and go from there. Uh, Postpartum Support International has a really good website with different connections throughout the entire country. Like I said, I'm linked up through two different pediatric clinics in Cincinnati Children's, so that's more curtailed. But there is uh, a Moving Beyond Depression therapist also at Best Point as well. And so I think just even asking around, just starting mm-hmm. to ask friends, and it doesn't mean anything, again, doesn't mean anything's extremely wrong with you. It just means you need that extra help, that extra support. So if a mom raises her hand at her new baby's pediatrician appointments and says, hey, I'm struggling, can you help me get connected to some help? That's going to happen. Pediatricians are ready to help there. Maybe technically they should be. <laughs> We're so, there. you know, I, I think this is what's so hard about, frankly, a lot of mental health topics is that, you know, we, we've been working in part of uh, the other work that I do is a lot of uh, training and education for resident doctors and other folks. And so it is an expectation that all doctors should be trained. And it's actually like recommended as standard screening. So just like if you show up um, to your infant's clinic visit and they give you some information to fill out about where their development is at, you know, that all comes down from up high in terms of, uh, you know, what the expectations are for doctors. The same is true. And it's been like, you know, out for almost 10 years at this point, Mm -hmm. the recommendation that moms are routinely screened for depression and that pediatricians or family practice doctors know what to do with it. The same thing for OBs. In reality, I think it's kind of variable. So I want to be really, really honest in this podcast that like you should do that. And I would hope that you have a provider who is comfortable, knowledgeable, trained, aware of resources. But I think to be honest, like so much of mental health, there might be some gaps. And so just that's where we hope that we also are sharing some resources. There have been moms who have said that literally like the, the provider just told them, oh, no, this is this is normal. This is what you're going to go through. Like, just expect it. And then just sent them on their way. But what we're trying to say is no, right? It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to get screening and it's okay to go further too. Like, 
wanting to speak with a psychologist or a social worker and going from there. And it sounds like I'm hearing trust yourself. If you hear mm-hmm. somebody yes. who says this is normal yes. and you're like, but it doesn't feel normal, mm-hmm. trust yourself and look for those additional resources. Mm-hmm. Make that additional outreach. Ask somebody else yep. because mm-hmm. if there are gaps or if there's, you know, what's normal to one person is not always going to be normal exactly. to somebody else. So, And to go excellent. back to it doesn't matter if it's normal. If you feel like you want and need more support, this really should be the world that we're in. And it's not so important that you fit within this bucket, Mm -hmm. but it's more that we should always be supporting, you know, the mental health and the well-being of caregivers, especially in pediatric spaces, because we know it's so important for kids. So I could talk about this all day long, but I, I do want to start to wrap us up. Would love to take a couple minutes just really quickly in this space of like misconceptions as well as, I know we hit on it a little bit earlier, but people who feel shame in this area. Could we just talk a little bit about that? Any misconceptions we can clear up or what should we be saying to moms who may be feeling shame that is misplaced? Yeah. Well, I let, I, I like what Rachel said before of, um, you know, it, it's great to have a healthy baby, quote unquote, what 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 healthy is. But at the same time, acknowledging that each child is so different and that your experience is your experience. The shame that can start to overtake a, a mom or a birthing person is very intense. And and being able just to validate and recognize and encourage and say, I, I hear you, I want to help. And being a part of that process is is just extremely important. When I think about myth busting about shame, you know, I think that it means that you're weak. It means that you don't love and appreciate your baby. And actually, we know that this is not true because what happens is that depression is a health condition that is keeping you from being able to do the things that you would want to do. And so, you know, I always think like we have so much more shame and stigma around mental health conditions because. I don't think that they're fully appreciated and recognized as a health condition. It feels like somebody could just choose to look at something in a different way or they could just choose to be happy. And that's all the like pop psychology stuff that has not any research backing behind it. And so, you know, just like we wouldn't tell somebody who had diabetes that they just needed to tell their blood sugar to be okay so they could eat a few more things that they wanted to eat, um, I think really understanding that this stigma and this shame means that it is actually even harder for somebody experiencing depression to find the energy, to have the hope, to have the trust that things could be different. And so it takes more work for somebody currently experiencing depression to even halfway raise their hand to say, maybe I need something different. Mm -hmm. And so that is how Kara and I talk about it with moms all the time is just the amount of like bravery, the amount of dedication to your child. And oftentimes we find that that is one of the biggest motivations to want something to be different is to say, I want to be able to be a different mom. I want to be able to be a different kind of caregiver than what I am currently, because I know that what I'm experiencing is holding me back from being who I want to be for my child. That takes so much strength and bravery. And it's the opposite of being weak or not caring about your child. Taking the time for yourself actually creates more energy to take care of your child, and it makes all the difference. 
incredibly wise words. Do you have any final thoughts to share before we wrap up? Well, I know that we're, we're primarily, we're here for hope and we want to extend that hope to all, all moms and birthing persons and just make sure that they know that there, there is help and that we're, we're here. And I, I think I would just piggyback on what Kara was saying before is that, you know, I would love it if we could shift this idea of, you know, taking good care of caregivers means that we're taking great care of kids. And so whether that is the village and the community around the caregiver, whether that is the caregiver themselves taking a little bit of time for themselves, that's directly good for the child. But also as kids start to grow up, they watch us as caregivers to see how we do everything right? And so we also have an opportunity and from a hope standpoint to make this different if we're modeling for kids that actually it's really emotionally healthy. You have really good boundaries. You have all kinds of other great things. If you say, hang on, I need five minutes for myself. And that is not being selfish. That is not prioritizing myself over my kids, whatever else it is. That is actually really, really, really crucial to being a healthy person so I can be the best version of me for myself, for my kids, for everybody else around me. This has been an amazing conversation. So grateful to both of you for your time today and for your incredible insight and wisdom and expertise. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. Our pleasure. You've been listening to Young and Healthy. We'll see you next time. This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on September 8th, 2023. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. This episode was produced by Kayla McNeil, and our theme music was created by Stephen Greco. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.